Hi, I'm Mark Haywood, and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. Just being interested in the world and asking questions and wanting to know, rather than trying to win an argument, is incredibly powerful. There have been very few times in history that statistics have played such a front and centre role in our daily lives. We've always been fascinated by them, of course, ogling momentarily over headlines that begin, one in ten people have. But typically, we leave the big data, the pie charts and the graphs, to statisticians and politicians to argue over. But we're beginning to realise that stats can fulfil more than momentary curiosity, and that if we drill down carefully into the information, we can start to get a better sense of the world. As we eagerly await the next government press briefing, hoping we're about to be let out of our homes for good, we're often faced with a series of slides detailing the latest coronavirus infection and death rates and economic implications. While we search for answers and look for any sign that this pandemic is drawing to an end, stats have unexpectedly become an incredibly important part of our lives, a way of keeping us abreast of a challenging and ever-changing situation. Tim Harford, aka The Undercover Economist, hammers that message home in his latest book, and he's my guest today. Chapter 1. Statistic Confusion There is, of course, a double edge to our love of statistics and this newfound obsession with coronavirus figures. It's clear to see, with the abundance of fake news circulating, that stats can be misconstrued. And because we're so eager to lap them up, we're all at risk of being misled. It goes back to the conversation with Professor Sir Richard Evans on conspiracy theories. Any old YouTuber spouting nonsense can manipulate stats to sell you almost any lie. Tim hopes to address this problem with his new book, which goes under the title How to Make the World Add Up here in the UK and The Data Detective in the US. His aim is to help us all think more clearly and calmly about the world, to understand our own biases better and to be wiser about statistics and data. The genesis of the book really came from the experience of trying to talk people through the numbers behind the rise of Donald Trump and, and the numbers in the Brexit debate and realising there's a lot more going on here than simply confidence intervals or sampling bias. It's so much of this is political and personal and psychological and I wanted to, to wrestle with all of that and understand it. There is a particular statistic that did come out of Brexit, which was the, the one plastered on the side of the bus, which was the 350 million that we could give to something else other than the EU. We are, as individuals, very susceptible to being influenced by statistics. Um, how important is it that we do dig into the science, for the want of a better word, that sits behind them rather than simply accepting them at face value? We certainly need to be asking questions about them. The, the, the 350 million on, on the bus is an interesting one because that statistic, I think, is most interesting as a distraction rather than as a lie. When we think about what we've learned about Brexit now, the advantages, the disadvantages, everybody listening will have their own view about it. I don't think anybody could honestly say, well, thank goodness the campaign was was laser focused on that three hundred and fifty million pound claim and whether it was true or not, because that is the that really is the central issue. And once we've sorted that out, we really understood Brexit and what was it was all going to be about. I mean, we now realise, and I think we probably should have realised at the time, it's neither here nor there what that number is and how big it is. 
that is not what Brexit is about. So one of the things that we need to reflect on is it's not simply whether a number is true or false. It's whether a number is is important, whether it's relevant, whether this is something that we should be expending a lot of our energy and curiosity and anger on or not. And there are more recent examples. So I was on BBC Radio quite recently being being asked to talk about the impact of vaccination, which I think is a really, really important issue. And But while I was on, this is the PM programme on Radio 4, I was also asked, well, uh, how come some people say it's more than 100,000 deaths and how come some people say it's just 85,000 deaths and some people say it's 90,000 deaths? To which the answer is, it doesn't matter. This is a huge number of people who have died and there are different ways of measuring these deaths, different ways of counting, and the slightly different ways of counting will give you slightly different results and none of it actually makes a difference. None of it should distract you from the fact that this is a tremendous human cost. But we we can very easily get distracted um, and there are some people who are very keen to distract us. The vaccinations is a fascinating topic because... Um, the speed at which we are rolling out the vaccine here in the UK is is very impressive. And I say that having no other data points than the data point I have at the moment, which is we're at something like 200 a minute. Um, now, you might tell me that actually the average rollout of a vaccination should be around 500. We don't know. But you hear a figure like 200 a minute and you think, actually, that's quite impressive. And then there is this nagging feeling at the back of your mind that actually, and I bring my writing hat to bear here the power of a of a story in something like film is not in the universal it's in the personal and as an audience or a reader you extrapolate the personal to fit the universal theme it's the same with vaccinations i have two sensations or three sensations which is one 200 a minute sounds impressive that's a very large scale operation second is when is my mum going to get it And third is, when am I going to get it? And recently, in fact, yesterday, my niece, who works for the NHS, had her first shot of the vaccine. Huge cause for celebration. My mum was texted very recently to say, you will receive another text very soon to say when you're going to get the vaccine. We're trying to boil it down to something that means something to us personally at the moment. Is that because we're naturally guided towards trying to make sense of things in a manner that means something to us. This pandemic has thrown so many statistics at us, I'm not sure that we understand them. Are we, as humans, trying to make sense of things that mean something to us, rather than simply looking at the the statistic at, at face value? One of the challenges, I think, is to integrate what you're learning from the statistics with what you learn from personal experience. It's tempting to privilege one over the other, depending on whether you're a geek or just a, you know, the, the man on the Clapham omnibus, to, to pick the cliche. But actually, you, you can't really understand the world in, unless you're able to integrate both. In the case of the vaccines, I would say actually the question of when is your mum going to be vaccinated and when are you going to be vaccinated? Of course, they're self-centred questions, but they're not selfish questions and they're not unreasonable questions. And they're actually much more informative. If I could tell you, if I could look at the statistics and give you a prediction, that is actually far more informative than to say 200 people a minute are being vaccinated. Actually, I, t- t- I saw that statistic and I thought, that's nonsense. It doesn't tell you anything. That doesn't, it really doesn't tell you anything. At 200 a minute, are we all going to be vaccinated by 2030 or are we all going to be vaccinated by next week? 
I mean, literally no way of knowing until you get your calculator out. So that is, somebody actually started with some really properly informative numbers and then turned them into something that sounded intuitive but is actually utter nonsense, the 200 a, million, a minute statistic. So one of the things I'm arguing in the book is you you need to find comparisons that help you make sense of the numbers. And I think it's perfectly reasonable to say okay my father is 77 Uh, I know roughly where he fits on the priority list it's pretty high up he's not at the front based on the statistics looks like he's going to be vaccinated before the end of January that tells me something I'm 47 based on the statistics looks like I'm going to be vaccinated sometime around July okay got it like I can I see how this is going that gives me an intuitive sense in a way that 200 shots a minute tells you nothing at all we had a sense of that last year where the guidance that was coming out of the government was in certain circles either contradictory or difficult to understand and people said they didn't necessarily know i myself have had many conversations that relate to okay so wait so how many people can i meet and how far apart do i have to be and how long am i able to do that and how many times a day am i able to do that and i would consider myself to be you know, a relatively sensible and well-educated person. So I do worry that the ability for things like statistics and guidance as it relates to the pandemic and probably other things as well to be misinterpreted or misunderstood is quite high. As I understand it, the book is an attempt to give people a toolkit to help them understand statistics in a more informed manner. Is that right? Yeah, well, not just understand statistics in a more informed manner, but to understand the world in a more informed manner. I just happen to think that there's an awful lot about the world that you can't understand without statistics. And in fact, that's you think about the virus. This pandemic has been a, a really brutal lesson in that. Almost everything that we we need to know, how does it spread? Who is most vulnerable? Who is most at risk? How can we reduce the risk of it spreading? How many people have got it? How deadly actually is it? How fast does it spread? What are the effective cures? You don't understand anything at all about any of those questions unless you have a statistical lens. Now, that's not to say statistics are the only thing that matter, that there's some privileged form of knowledge that should overwhelm all other forms of knowledge, but there's a lot that we cannot know without them. And yet we tend to take them for granted. We tend to use them as weapons in a political argument rather than as tools to understand what is actually going on in the world. Before we move on to chapter two, if this podcast has inspired you to write more or maybe even to write for the first time, then you may be interested in our sister project, The Writing Salon. Its membership is over 200 people strong and features all levels of experience from people who have never written before to people writing for stage and screen. We publish anthologies of member-produced work and just like Behind the Spine, find learning opportunities in unlikely places. The salon has been running for several years. Right now it's a virtual event, but we hope we can reunite in person before too long. It's an active community and if you're looking for support, it may be just the thing you need. We're on Twitter and Instagram as at The Writing Salon. There's a private Facebook group. Just search for The Writing Salon group. If social media isn't your thing, no problem. We'll put a link to the email newsletter sign-up sheet in the show notes. 
The Writing Salon is by writers, for writers, because writing is hard. But now, on with this week's episode. Chapter 2, Working From Home. Sometimes stats can't tell us everything. They can't predict the unexpected. And life has rarely been more unexpected than it is right now. Almost overnight, because of the pandemic, millions of people saw their normal turned upside down. Yet despite decades of our assuming employees can only be productive working in an office, the sudden, rapid and successful shift to working remotely from home has proven us totally wrong. In one of Tim's recent columns for the Financial Times, he talks about this shift being one of the most surprising developments of the pandemic. I think it has been a surprise. It's it's easy to exaggerate the extent to which the economy is virtual. Um, those of us who do work virtually, it can be kind of hard to, to understand what else is going on out there um, and vice versa. My wife was on a, a book club Zoom in, I guess, June. Some of the the other people on the book club were, were doctors. And at one point, one of the doctors said, so what, so are you telling me that you've all just been at home with your families for months? And we're like, yes, that is exactly what we've been doing. And she, she of course, has you know, been going to work as normal, saving lives, trying to, trying to cope with the impact of this pandemic. And she just hadn't quite grasped that this was what everyone else's experience was. So, you know, it is very easy to generalize too far from our own experience. All that said, it has been remarkable how resilient the supply chains have been, how flexible the economy has been. You know, if you said we're going to have queues outside supermarkets because of the the capacity of supermarkets is going to be dramatically reduced, we're going to close most of the shops, we're going to close all the restaurants, going to close all the bars. The BBC is largely going to be produced from people's bedrooms. The Financial Times is largely going to be produced from people's bedrooms. Uh, and this is all going to happen in days. You know, I think I would have said something's going to fall over. I mean, there's some, there's, and of course, stuff, stuff does fall between the cracks. Mistake, you know, people make mistakes, but it's been astonishing the capacity to, to make that shift. The FT, for example, uh, we, we were all in the office for the Rishi Sunak's pre-budget statement, I think, which was maybe the 12th of March. And then the day after, I, I think I may have got some small details wrong, but the, the, basically the day after, it, it was said, uh, Rula Khalaf, the editor of the FT, said, we're going to start experimenting with working from home. And I think half the office went home and the other half stayed in, something like that. And then by the weekend, she just made the call, actually, everyone's just going to stay at home, except for those who absolutely essentially have to have to be in the office, which is not very many people. So we just, we just moved an entire newspaper into everyone's bedrooms. I mean, that's, that is incredible. How can that, I, I just would never have believed that that was possible. And the same sort of thing has been happening in all kinds of workplaces all over the world. So that, that is a testament to unexpected resilience, I think, of, of our economic systems. Yes, uh, it's it's been fascinating to observe the pivots that that you can see. So, for example, large organisations in the UK, particularly financial services companies, who would tend to have call or contact centres in lower cost uh, locations, have had to repatriate that service to the UK at a time when you can't physically move people around. They've had to give. SIM cards and mobile telephony devices to people that haven't 
ordinarily been provided with them because they work in a branch setting, for example. So there's been a huge amount of work that has gone on and it's been noticeable in, you know, the, the figures that come out of the state of the economy. But the fact that we haven't seen major collapse of large parts of the infrastructure is extraordinary. It's an extraordinary resilient system. And I'm not sure we perhaps appreciated how resilient it might be. But is that because of you know, pre-existing underlying levels of resilience, or is it because we as human beings have simply adapted and been very clever and, and tried to find a way around the, the noise? Well, you know, we are individually adaptable. The system is adaptable. There's also a certain degree to which it's self-correcting, right? So just imagine all this had happened 15 years ago. We just didn't have the bandwidth. Well, what would have happened? We would just have had to roll with the punches, I think. And you would have had some system where you said, look, um, everyone over the age of 60 is going to have to work from home and, and, and literally phone in their work. And uh, everyone under the age of 60 is just going to have to, you know, take the risk of, of getting COVID. And the pandemic would have spread much more quickly and there would have been a public health catastrophe. It might have passed more quickly as well. Um, but we would just have had to do it because you just, yeah, we didn't have an uh, an alternative. Um, so, you know, we do what we can, and we push the we push the limits, and we find out what the limits are. And in this case, I think it's been surprising how much has been shiftable to the internet, and the internet itself has been so resilient. If it had worked out differently, we would have asked, we would have made different choices. I think, as individuals and as a society. If I think about my own relationship with data and statistics and things that I try and make sense of the world is we we are as a nation if we think about Nelson columns and London buses as being universal weights and measures for height and width or height and length I tend to have an intuitive sense as to the value of something or or the efficacy of something um, but I do worry that I tend to look for a data point that proves the point I'm trying to make or, or proves the conclusion I'm I'm trying to reach. I, I assume I'm not alone in that. Are we predisposed to try and make sense of the world in a way that means something to us? Yeah. I mean, this is the most famous way of describing this is as confirmation bias, but we're our brains are constantly trying to interpret the patterns around us and they'll they we will fit stuff into our preconceptions. I mean there was a was a wonderful little video went around on social media quite recently of, of um, audio processing where you hear an ambiguous sound and you're, you're told that the sound meet, you know, means one thing and you, you hear it as one thing. You're t told the sound means another thing. You hear it as another thing. Uh, there's a, was a famous example of if you, um, if you play, I um, can't quite remember which Queen song it is, but um, uh, possibly from Under Pressure, if you play, play, play a Queen song backwards, just sounds like nonsense until you're told, oh, actually, the secret message in this is X. And then you can't unhear it. It's super clear. So we're, you know, we're always imposing structure on the world. Add to that the pressures of political polarization, tribalism. You know, we've all got our tribe. We've all got our in crowd and our out crowd. And so on top of our natural tendency to fit things into pre-existing structures. We're also trying to win arguments. We're also trying to demonstrate loyalty, uh, you know, sound mindedness. We, you know, we think the kinds of things that our friends think and we disapprove of the kind of people that our friends disapprove of. So that's just deepening the tendency to dismiss things that don't fit 
and to over extrapolate from quite noisy data and, and see a pattern and say, well, this is definitely uh, what's going on. And also to try and take comfort in data points that give us some kind of relief or some kind of reassurance that everything's okay. Yeah, well, there are different ways of doing that. So, so you can take comfort because it's good news, or you can take comfort because it's the kind of bad news that proves I was right all along, that it was going to be bad news. So there are different sorts of ways that you can find that, but yes, yes. Chapter three, holy guacamole. I'm obsessed with avocados, or more precisely, the price of avocados, particularly in Los Angeles. Odd, I know, but I usually spend time in LA for work, pandemic allowing. And I've noticed over the years that for some odd reason, the price of avocados in supermarkets constantly fluctuates. But why? One day they're $3.99, the next they're $4.50. It doesn't make sense. Anyway, rant over. But my strange obsession got me thinking about why we, as humans, often obsess over seemingly small and insignificant pieces of information. I think it is what we call the curiosity gap. So the final chapter of how to make the world add up stroke the data detective is all about the power of curiosity uh, as a, I mean, there are no panaceas, but it, it really helps because curiosity motivates you to ask the right questions, but it can also dissolve some of the sort of toxic polarization around us. Just Just being interested in the world and asking questions and wanting to know uh, rather than trying to win an argument, is incredibly powerful. Okay, so how does this fit into your avocados? Well, the, the map, the, sort of the mental model, I think, that a lot of psychologists have is that curiosity is about knowing that there's a gap in your knowledge. So if you know nothing whatsoever, you tend not to be curious because you just you don't even notice, you don't even realise there's something you don't know. And if you know everything about a topic, there's no curiosity because there's no gap to fill. So what's going on with it with the avocados is you've got your you, you've got your strange obsession with avocados and you've studied the the numbers for years but you don't really fully understand what's going on. So you know enough to be curious, you don't know enough to to have stopped becoming curious because all of your curiosity has been satisfied. We can't have the I think the very fulfilling relationship you have with avocados, we can't have that relationship with everything in the world, but I think we should try to cultivate it. We should be trying to notice things. Uh, ah, there's something going on here. There's something I don't fully understand. I should find out more. Uh, I, should be va I should value reading, talking, thinking that helps to close that gap in my knowledge. And I think that's a very healthy place to be. And I, I completely agree. And I would like to think that if anything good can come out of this pandemic, it would be the transition of that natural curiosity into some form of professional endeavor. We have, as a world, been fed and consumed data that relates to the R number, data that relates to deaths, infections, hospitalizations, people on ventilators, the procurement and supply of PPE. There is a sense, I would like to think, that this will urge a new generation of people into science and medicine and perhaps even data and the discovery of truth so that we empower people to want to do something about it. I know there is anecdotal data to suggest that in recent years, 
the number of people studying, for example, politics has increased as people, particularly young people, want to make sense of the world. There is a hope, I think, Tim, that there is a generation of younger people out there who will look at this and say, I would like to have a career in science or in medicine or in pharmaceutical um, discovery that will potentially help us. Is there a sense that there is potentially a source of good in all of this coming further down the line? Well, I would hope so. I think it's too early to to be sure of that, but it make it would make sense. And I think the other thing that I hope for, which is related, is not just that young people decide they're going to become uh, vaccine developers, biochemists, epidemiologists, and so on, and, and, and of course, doctors and nurses, but also that the rest of us, who are maybe a little bit too old to change our ways so profoundly, have an appreciation that the numbers matter, the numbers can help us understand the world, we shouldn't take them for granted, that we should value the people who are gathering data for us to help us understand what's going on. I, you know, I, I would hope that all of those changes are, are going to happen. It was very striking for me in March when I was just putting the finishing touches to the manuscript of the book and the UK entered lockdown to suddenly realise that this argument that I had been making, which is, you know, guys, there's more to numbers than just convincing people to vote for whatever stupid idea you've got. There's more to argument. There's more to numbers than just winning arguments. Um, this idea that I had was suddenly being demonstrated, I think, very forcefully to be true. And suddenly the numbers were telling us matters of life or death. The virus didn't care whether we, we believed in misinformation or not. The virus was just going to do what it was going to do. And we were trying to understand it. Uh, that, I think, was, a, was an important uh, moment. I had to go back and revise the book, but it was interesting how, how straightforward the revision was because actually everything that was happening fell very naturally into the structure that uh, I'd already set out. So yeah, I mean, maybe it's a foolish hope because it turns out almost anything can be polarised, almost anything can be turned into an argument, but I'm going to cling on to the hope nonetheless. Absolutely. Um, let's imagine for a brief, wonderful moment that the pandemic has finished and that it goes away very quickly and that the people in hospital recover and we can go back to some form of normality. That normality now has a very different dawn on it with the advent of Britain's brave new world and place in the world post-Brexit. Um, I wonder whether we have not lost focus on the data and the statistics and the economics behind Brexit because of the pandemic, but has there been a sense that do we, do we truly understand the impact of leaving the EU um, at a macro level? I think we're, we're starting to see it in terms of conversations about, you know, rotting fish at ports, things taking longer potentially to get to us, companies not shipping to Northern Ireland and being very apologetic ab about that. Do you think we're yet to see the true impact of Brexit? And if so, what might that impact be? I think we're going to, it's going to be a slow process of discovery and, uh, well, discovery for some people and, of course, denial for other people. So we'll, we will have to see. I think the, the lesson of the pandemic is that we are extremely adaptable. We will find ways to work around. Personally, I have, I have yet to have anybody explain to me what the advantages of Brexit are supposed to be. People tell me, oh, it's, it's about democracy. Okay, fine, I, I recognise people voted for this and that it's about sovereignty 
okay, sure, um, but sovereignty to do what? No, no one's given me an answer to those things yet, although you know, perhaps they're out there. From a straightforward economic perspective, the costs are fairly obvious. We've got a huge market on our doorstep that it's now just harder to deal with, harder to trade with. Whether you're talking about goods, whether you're talking about services, it's just, it's just going to be more difficult to get everything done. But we are very adaptable. So how, how exactly we do adapt to that will be interesting. So some of the adaptations, these, you know, there'll be, there'll be obvious disruptions, but I think a lot of the adaptations will be quite silent. So on the more negative side, you'll just see companies just stopping doing business with the UK or British businesses just stopping doing business with the EU because it's not worth the hassle. And, and that will be an invisible cost, and that will just build and build and build over time. On the more positive side, though, we may find, oh, actually, there are different ways to do things that maybe we should have been doing all along, different ways to organize our supply chains, different ways to supply services and so on, just as we've discovered during the pandemic. So I'm, I want to be clear, I don't think Brexit was a very good idea, and I don't think it will have good effects, but almost every disruption has some positive sides. So we, we're just going to have to keep our, keep our eye out for those positive sides. And I'm prepared to be surprised. Maybe, maybe uh, you know, bright sun at uplands await. Maybe they do. Uh, and speaking of the, the future and seeing what comes next, what does the rest of the year hold for you, Tim? What else are you working on? My new podcast, Cautionary Tales. Uh, season two of Cautionary Tales is going to uh, appear on the 26th of February or weekly from the 26th of February. That's going to be very exciting. So I'm, I'm just exploring tales of things going wrong, sometimes fiascos, sometimes catastrophes, and what we can learn from those things, working with proper A-list actors and a brilliant composer. And it's just great fun to work on that project. And then I'm just going to have to see, I'll have to see when I get to travel again. And I've got a couple of book projects on the back burner that I'm excited to get going with, but I think they're, they're too... They're too incipient at the moment for me to discuss them yet, but there's always fun stuff down the track. Well, we wish you the very best of luck with all of those. Uh, Tim Harford, I know you're very busy, so thank you very much for finding the time to come on. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Conclusion. A massive thank you then to Tim Harford for joining me on the podcast. And to recap, what have we learnt? Statistics can be used as distractions. Though a figure might be true, it might not be relevant to anything, and knowing it serves no purpose, and we shouldn't be expending our curiosity on it. Don't divert your reader's attention by allowing an unimportant plot point to distract their curiosity. You may find they get too interested in something you only intended to be a side note. We've shown tremendous and unexpected resilience in the face of this pandemic, highlighted by our swift and successful move to remote working. It's important to build consistent personalities for the characters in your stories so that they're believable. But don't let that stop you from allowing a character to do something wildly out of character to try and take your reader by surprise. Curiosity motivates us. When we know too much or nothing at all about a subject, we aren't curious about it. Epic novels like The Lord of the Rings have rich backstories and a fully fleshed out lore. And yet, more than 60 years on, fans still find intrigue and musing over the parts of the fictional history that have been left out. Feel free to leave question marks over certain events in your story. Let your reader's curiosity run wild. Let them fill in the blanks. And finally, Tim says, almost every disruption has some positive sides. 
With the number of jobs in the arts being lost, it may be hard for you to see any positives right now. But hang in there, there will be silver linings. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood, and if you'd like to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine. New episodes are released weekly. Please like us and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. Goodbye for now. Stay safe and keep writing. <laughs>